You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. How can healthcare professionals improve the care and management in the Hispanic population? Joining us to discuss caring for Hispanic population with diabetes is Executive Director for the Institute for Public Health and Education Research and Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Dr. Carlos Campos. Dr. Campos, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Steve. Now, Carlos, um, tell us a little bit about the occurrence of diabetes in the Hispanic population. You know, I think when you when you answer that question, you're going to, you have to talk about the Hispanic uh, population in, in uh, as a group. You know, because really you're looking at a a large amount of sub ethnic groups within the, within that term Hispanic. Uh, you have those of Mexican descent, uh, people from Cuba. Puerto Rico, Central and South America. So you really have a variety of different groups that uh, that their cultures do vary uh, somewhat. But when you look at the Hispanic population in the U.S., Steve, 70%, and I think the 2010 census is going to bear that out, 70% of Hispanics in this country are of Mexican descent. I happen to be calling you from Texas, and um, and in the state of Texas, about 48.9% of the population now is Hispanic. Wow. Uh, 33.3% is non-Hispanic white, 14% are, are black. So, you know, we weren't really not we weren't going to reach that number to the year 2020, and now here we are in the year 2010, and we're about half of the population of the state of Texas now. now what, what, are, what are some of the reasons why the Hispanic population has a higher rate of diabetes I think there's uh, several reasons for that. I think, uh, you know, I th- we have a genetic predisposition on the way we metabolize uh, sugar and glucose. Um, and But I think the the big reason is the, is the amount of diet, the kind of diet that we do have. Uh, you know, we always wonder, is this is this genetic or is this environment? I think uh, all the studies in the back of, in the past have told us this is, you know, there's a big environmental component to it. And... Um, and so I think a lot of our starchy diets that we have, you know, we talk about our tortillas. I uh, gave a presentation not too long ago and talked about how, you know, one 10-inch tortilla will have an equivalency of about 10 teaspoons of sugar. So if you're slamming down two breakfast tacos in the morning, you're slamming down about 20 teaspoons of sugar in just a tortilla. Well, I like the breakfast burritos myself, but I never look at the total calories because that, that is a deterrent right there. What should be the role of the primary care physician be in early diagnosis? And tell us about this interesting title that you've, this phrase you've come up with, fish for diabetes. Well, we know, for example, and, and that in, in, in Hispanics of Mexican descent, that one out of four Hispanics, uh, male over the age of 45, will have diabetes. And so, you know, this is, of course, a disease process that we want to catch early and deal with it early. Uh, I think most a lot of our medicines are going to respond better when you do that. And so if you have a population, for example, in central Texas where I'm at, uh, where I know that one out of four Hispanic males over the age of 45 will have diabetes, then I look for reasons to check a blood sugar. So if they come in with a sore throat or a backache, 
and knowing that the, uh, the, that this is a disease, a disease process that we see in this population, then I'll look for reasons. And you'll be surprised how many times we'll get someone who has a blood sugar of over 200. And with our guidelines, that automatically diagnoses them as diabetes. Uh, and uh, and or sometimes you know if we if if it, we think it's high, um, say they have a two hour pulse brain of more than forty, we'll get an A one C. And invariably, you'll have an A one C that's in the pre diabetic range, which is which allows us an opportunity to talk to them about the disease process, especially because most of them. And, and uh, to get back to your first question, about one out of three Hispanics in this country will have diabetes. Most of most of Hispanics will have diabetes in their family. So you want to be able to pick up this disease process early to make a big difference. Let's talk about the whole family. I think the family is important in any type of diabetes, no matter what type of ethnic or cultural background you come from. But I think it's, I think it's especially true in the Hispanic population. Am I correct in that? No question. As a matter of fact, often, um, for example, the, the mother or even the father will defer to their families and will often neglect themselves to make sure that they provide for their families. And uh, so sometimes we have to go back and reel them in to make sure they come to their appointments, that they buy their medications and do that, that sort of thing. Um, I remember when I first started practice, uh, I, I was in with, uh, uh, this is 26 years ago, with two non-Hispanic white physicians. And, um, and I would always invite the families to come in. And, you know, after being there two or three months, they, they brought me in and said, you know, this, the, your population is, is using up all our toilet paper, you're using all our paper cups. And I think there was, there was an opportunity to develop some cultural competency in these doctors to say, look, this is a population that needs to bring in the family. Because, number one, there's health literacy issues, there's language issues that the family can help us with. And so, you know, when you have an exam room, you've got to put maybe more than one chair in the exam room so that other people can sit down as they come in and make them comfortable and make them welcome to come in. I can see how that was so effective. What, let's talk about some other cultural barriers. What should a PCB consider uh, when looking at trying to communicate effectively with their patients? Anybody who deals with the Hispanic population should know certain things about the culture, for example, as they greet the patient. Often, you know, we in America here, have, uh, as Americans, we want to walk up to somebody, look at them in the eye, give them a, f- a firm handshake, and, and it gives them the... It gives them the whole feeling that we're confident about what we're doing. Well, in, in the Hispanic culture, that can be a huge turnoff. You don't squeeze their hands because that often gives them the feeling you're trying to overpower them. You don't look at them in the eye because you're defying sometimes. You give that sense of being de- defying them and being dominant about them. So I often, when, when I walk in to see Mrs. Kohlenberg in my office, I, I will look at her in the eye and shake her hand nice and firm, say, good morning, Mrs. Kohlenberg, to give her that sense that you have a confident doctor that knows what he's doing. When I walk in to see Ms. Gonzalez, I will often lower my eyes with respect and say, good morning. We'll just put my hand out there and let her shake my hand, not even squeeze her hand, to let her know that this is a trust thing with her. And when you do those sort of things at the very beginning, then you develop that kind of relationship that lays the foundation 
for what your orders are going to be. Well, gee, Carlos, I think I've been doing it kind of wrong because uh, I do all my patients the same. So I'm, I am learning uh, about approaching the different uh, ethnic groups. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Carlos Campos. We are discussing the need to improve the care and management of Hispanics with diabetes. Well, what are some of the key cultural components to the initiation of insulin therapy? I know that's a huge barrier in diabetes care, period. I think the key component is fear, Steve. I think often, uh, you know, we we talk about uh, the fear that the patient might have because they often will say, you know what, I don't want to start on insulin. My grandmother was put on it, and two weeks later she was on kidney dialysis, or my uncle was put on insulin, and then his leg was amputated. And I think that the, the, the fear that, number one, the patient has because they, they really don't understand that often insulin was started way too late when the complications were already occurring, but it's also the fear that we physicians have instilled into the patient, that we'll often, we'll often use insulin as a punishment, as opposed to using insulin as our natural hormone that our body's making that is really a help to us. Let me ask you this, Carlos. I know that there are a lot of herbal remedies and uh, alternative therapies out there and, and food supplements. How prevalent is it in the Hispanic population where they gravitate to these versus maybe proven FDA-approved therapies? My grandmother was a curandera, which was sort of a, a, a medicine uh, healer in the Hispanic faith and then especially in the uh, Mexican uh, tradition. And so... Um, and so often I, patients came to see me just because they knew my grandmother was a good and that and the amount of faith that, that they place on not only adjunctive uh, uh, alternative medicine is really significant. And I think we ought to, instead of making them feel like the, like this is something that's sort of beneath us, it's something that we should work with them on this, saying that a lot of these medicines are not going to hurt them, most of them won't. But you know what? In addition, these are other medicines that you ought to take. And I think there's some great new medicines that are coming out that we should be using, uh, especially in this population. Well, I think that's the, the strategy. I mean, we're not, as providers, you know, we're never going to stop the, the use of these herbal remedies. But we can say, okay, let's, let's make sure you take these in addition to. Well, let's talk about some of the newer medications. I mean, we have new oral agents. We have GLP agonists such, such as Bieda and Victoza. How, how do these new medications fit in in a typical Hispanic uh, population in terms of therapy? Well, you know, if you look at the Hispanic population when compared to the non-Hispanic white, we will have a greater rate of obesity and uh, of just being overweight. I mean, I think the data is there. And I think these new drugs that are out, uh, the GLP agonist, uh, the DPP-4s, um, really start working on, you know, the bad boy in, uh, in, in, uh, in the physiology, which is glucagon. Uh, and, uh, and, and also the, the intense hunger that our diabetic patients have. And that's why I think our newer drugs, especially the one that we're using uh, recently, has been Victoza because it's only once-a-day medication and, and has really been a medication that has suppressed patients' appetites. Um, has been, I think, a big key in treating uh, the, the Hispanic population because of the rate of obesity and overweightness that we see in that population. So certainly, I think our newer drugs address, I think, the physiology more properly. 
uh, and uh, uh, help them in, um, in in losing weight. I know, Steve, when we were residents, we would think, gosh, man, how come these people just can't stop eating? And then now we're realizing that these poor, you know, the, some of these patients were just, it was difficult for them to do that because of just the physiology. Well, some of this GLP-1s, uh, agonist, uh, and DPP-1, I think they address some of those issues. And, uh, and they're certainly useful adjuncts to therapy and great to have in our toolbox. Yes, and I think it really comes down to, as you said, you know, let patients know that we care for them, uh, get their trust, and take away some of their fears. We'd like to thank our guest, Executive Director for the Institute for Public Health and Education Research and Associate Clinical Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas, Dr. Carlos Campos. Dr. Campos, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. What a pleasure it was to be with you today. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.